0: Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by Intervarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond.
1: This is Karen Heis-Guzman, and I'm the National Director for Women in the Academy and Professions, and it's my privilege today to have a conversation with Dr. Quinn No Metzger. Who is a professor in the Department of Health System Science at the upcoming Bernard Tyson School of Medicine that Kaiser is building in Pasadena? Welcome, Quinn. It's great to have you uh, with me today. I look forward to our conversation. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to begin by briefly sharing your background, maybe where you grew up, uh, your education, uh, and how those things have influenced who you are today.
2: Thank you, Karen. It's great talking to you. So I was born in Vietnam during the Vietnam War, and my family immigrated here when I was eight years old. We were among the first wave of refugees who came to the United States in 1975. And I grew up in the Midwest in a small town in central Illinois. I went to medical school in Chicago and then, you know, did my fellowship uh, at Harvard uh, School of Public Health and Harvard Medical School in research and public health. Currently, you know, I am a professor of medicine in Department of Health System Science at the Bernard J. Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine. And it's a brand new medical school that we are just now opening. Our mission of the medical school is to train the next generation of physician leaders to practice healthcare in our new space and and i think that you know we want people to focus both on population health community health social justice and become change agents not just seeing the patient but seeing the patient within their family within their community within their workspace and and to be able to understand that that we all live within systems and then healthcare itself is a system in a larger system of the local environment you know and the state and the federal i was fortunate to have spent the last decade within the federal government and working both in the Obama administration, and then after that. So, uh, you know, my career, I I think, has kind of shifted from academic medicine. I was a professor of medicine at the University of California at Irvine in Southern California for about a decade. And then in 2010, I was recruited into the Obama administration and worked with multiple uh, agencies that actually helped to fund the federally qualified health centers, which are community health centers and then also as the scientific director for the United States Preventive Services Task Force. And in that capacity, I basically directed research and uh, guidance for prevention for clinicians. So that's kind of where where my my past and, and where I am today. So and recently moved back to California in order to become professor in healthcare system science at the new medical school.
1: That's great. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about your spiritual background or your faith journey and how that's shaped you? Maybe specifically how you see or understand the ways in which your faith informs the way you think about and do your work.
2: So I think that my faith became more real when I was in high school. Basically, we were going to a Methodist church, and I was involved, you know, in youth group. But I think my faith really grew when I was in college through university Christian Fellowship. And, you know, I had a great university chapter at Illinois Wesleyan University, where I met my husband. And then, you know, continued to grow, uh, you know, doing graduate school and medical school. And then after that, I mean, I think that it's been really important to me to kind of find fellowship. As a student and throughout my life, it's really important to kind of have that faith community, I, I think, over the years and just very fortunate to have had great people such as uh, Kathy Twan McLean and her husband, Scott, and others in University and at University Press along the way to kind of like walk with you in this kind of journey of life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. How are you seeing these days your faith maybe informing the way you're thinking about your new job and the way you think about medicine, even the the whole systems conversation that we had are there ways in which you see your faith informing the way you're thinking about these things?
2: Well, I think what I really learned especially during my time in the federal government for the past decade is that you have to be at the table in order to make those important policy decisions and who you are as a person in your faith and your background and and where you grew up, all of that, you know, you bring to the table. So when we talk about public policy, you know, and I was certainly involved in public policy more from a federal level, from the federal government, rather than at the local level, but it's really about people. Public policy is really about the people who make up the public policy, who push an agenda, who push what they're passionate about and what they want to change. So I think going back to my faith, you know, it has to do with who I am, my values, what I think is important, how important it is to make sure that healthcare is delivered to everyone, that we basically provide, you know, healthcare services and that certainly drove my impetus to go into the federal government and worked in at community health centers uh, for underserved populations, people who may not have health insurance. That was my whole impetus to actually go to Washington, DC and work in the Bureau of Primary Health Care, which is a federal agency in the Department of Health and Human Services that funds community health centers throughout the country. So that federal agency actually funds health care for over 20 million people in the United States who are getting health care through the federally qualified health centers. Some of them may have, you know, private insurance or through the insurance exchange. Others may be uninsured, no insurance, but they, they all can get health care there. And certainly, I think my faith of wanting to go into public health, into public policy, my faith actually helped me. I didn't say that quite right, but, but certainly, you know, that, that shaped who I am and, and kind of drove my desire to go into public health and into public policy, into public service in the federal government.
1: And I'm curious, too, are there ways that you see the work that you do and the experiences that you have within your work, are there ways in which that forms or influences your faith, the way you think about what it means to walk with Jesus, again, as you're just influenced by the various experiences that you have within your job?
2: Well, I mean, I think that, you know, as I said before, I mean, I feel like public policy is really about people. And people bring in their own experience. They bring in who they are, how they grew up, whether they're a man or a woman or whatever gender or sexual orientation or race, ethnicity, backgrounds, you know, socioeconomic status and faith. We are whole people and our whole experience is what we bring into any job Or into any kind of interactions that we have. So I think as I've grown older, you know, I try not to isolate my faith. I mean, my faith is who I am, but it's also being an Asian woman, being a first generation immigrant, also influences who I am. All of that. I bring into my job. So whether I am working as a public policy, public servant within the federal government and helping shape policy or as a scientist in, you know, looking at the science behind public health or prevention, which is what I was doing as the director of the the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, was we were actually making recommendations, looking at the science and make recommendations for preventive services for clinicians. And we basically help set recommendations and guidelines for preventive services. And whether now, you know, coming back into academia as a professor and, you know, working with medical students, it's all, you know, my faith influences my values and everything that I do. So I think it's that integration that's really important, right? Where it shouldn't just be what you do at church or what you do with your Christian friends. It's all about who you are. Um, And your faith should be, you know, just kind of part of your life. You know, I don't necessarily think about it, partly maybe because I've been in the academy, which is generally a secular place. I've never been at a Christian university. I've always been at big, either public university or private university. I've always been in the federal government where, you know, there's not a lot of space necessarily to talk about my faith. Again, as a public servant, I'm not supposed to be pushing my faith, but I don't, you know, I just, it's like, it is who I am. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that I'm influencing and that faith comes forward, even if it's not necessarily spoken out loud. I think it really influences the values that I hold and how I interact with people.
1: Yeah. That's helpful. Thanks. Yeah. I think too often the, Danger is to, as you mentioned, to sort of divide ourselves up into different selves, right? And not bring our whole selves into right. whatever the place is that we're entering into, right? I used to tell graduate students that life is not a TV dinner that's sectioned off. It's actually a casserole with right. all these exactly. different parts of who we are that arrive together. So you just mentioned this sort of difference in terms of the places where you've been investing during your career. So it's been this interesting mix of positions inside and outside of the academy. What have you appreciated about being in those different spaces and are there unique contributions that you feel like you've been able to offer in those different spaces?
2: I think that in the academy, the advantage is you do have that intellectual freedom that's very unique in the academy where you're in an environment where you encourage to think about things, ask questions, challenge the status quo, innovate, do new things. And I think that's what's exciting about being in the academy is that you're able to kind of, you know, be at the cutting edge push things a little further and that's the freedom that's there. And then also the big responsibility of shaping learners and new generations of students. And I was actually really happy that I left the academy about a decade ago to work in government. And where I feel that you can really make a big change, whether it's local government or state government or the federal government, is you're actually now you're looking at the population you're looking at big policy or changes, not just individually, that you know that when I interact with a patient as a doctor one-on-one, I have the possibility to influence the life of that patient who's sitting in front of me. But when you do public health or when you're in public policy, you're actually in population health. You can actually influence lives of millions of people. You know, what I think that I've really learned is, especially being in government for the past 10 years with different administration is that, as I've said before, public policy is people. But to really make sure that you are creating lasting change, you need to make sure that the structure and the processes are changed as well, because the people will come and go. I had four different bosses who were political appointees in the Democratic administration, then I had a Republican administration and had a different boss. Those people are going to come and go, and their terms as political appointees may be two years, four years, you know, six years. But when you actually change the systems, whether that's through laws or processes you actually will be able to have lasting change. Like even when you're gone, they're, you know, your boss is gone, they're gone, you're gone. Those things are still within the system. So let me just give you an example. As part of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, as people know, people are wise enough to write into the law that you should be able to get your preventive services without having to pay for them so that it would encourage prevention. Because that was written into, as part of the Affordable Care Act, now you're able to get your screening mammogram without having to pay. You can get a screening colonoscopy without paying. You can get a vaccine that's a preventive vaccine and you don't have to pay for it. And that was the ways that people were able to basically make that change. But through a law beyond when they're there or not, it's now a part of the law that you can go to your doctor and get a preventive service and not have to pay for it because we know that that basically has, you know, long-term effects for the population, not just for you, but for vaccines and other things, you know, it's actually improves your health, but also the population's health. So I think that that's what I would encourage people to do is, it's not just about you, you know, marching or, you know, I mean, I think it's important that we all do things for ourselves that we need to do at this time of change, where, you know, we should be coming together marching in the streets, but I think it's most important when you can get laws changed, Um, and that's when you're changing the whole institution for the future, not just for one moment in time.
1: Sure, so following up on that then, can you talk specifically about the importance of having Christians and having people of color be at the proverbial table when it comes to influencing laws and making those sorts of changes that are long-term and lasting and, and also impact a significant number of people, right?
2: Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's two issues. One that I would say is getting the data, right? And that's what people in the academia do. We are researchers, we publish papers, we create new knowledge. That's what we get rewarded in academia. That's how we get promoted, you know, from assistant professor to full professor. But that data piece and the science is only part of the story, well, if you really want to change policy and make change, you want to have the data. So, so certainly that's very important. And I've always you know, seen myself as a scientist and a person who is very data-driven and very evidence-based. But the people who actually have the power to make policy changes, to influence people, to help get laws passed, they're, just, they're people. And they need both the data, but they also need the people to push that agenda for change. And that's where I think it's important for people to have different voices. One thing that all of us did as part of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force was we had a public comment period where we would put forth a draft recommendation statement for, say, you know, a new screening test that would be posted publicly. People would send in their comments we looked at all the comments uh, from everyone and we would get thousands of comments regarding a screening test or a new way of doing something. And that's really important to get everybody's voice. And I think it's really important that we all participate in giving public comments. That's one way that you know the government has to get the public's voice. The other way to get the public's voice is through your elected officials. And, and it's so important for you to contact your representative at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, your state senators, your state representatives, and federal representatives, because they are there to represent you. And that is the quickest way to change laws, because they're there, they're representing you. And if you don't like them, you can vote them out (laughs) during the next election. But they're accountable to you. So I think that that's where everybody's voice should be heard. I think there's only going to be smaller numbers of people who will be at the table who will be actually making policy. And it's important that we have a diverse set of people sitting at that table. Or even if they're not diverse, they're hearing from their constituents who are diverse. So, you know, I mean, it may be that your congressman is a white male, older white male, but you know, there's nothing to say that you can't influence that person. And it's great if you can go to Washington, D.C. and make the case, but it's just as important that you tell your Congress woman or man what you want because they're representing you. So again, I I think that it's really important to have that diversity of voices, you know, different socioeconomic background, different race, ethnicity, different genders, uh, different religions. But we all have a voice, and I think we should basically exercise that voice. It's more important to do that now than ever.
1: That's really helpful. Thanks. So I'm going to switch gears just a little bit here. What has been your experience in the field of medicine as a woman and as a woman of color?
2: I think that it's important that we have role models that look like us or that are diverse. Because again, I, I think that, you know, when we talk about stereotypes or implicit bias or explicit bias, it's because we see things, whether it's on television, in the movies, in life. We basically have this image, right? And I think we've all known, you know, a lot of times, you know, in the, in the old days, if you could see billboards, you know, it's usually your doctor is an old white male, you know, who looks like Marcus Welby. I don't know, if, old enough to remember who that is, but, uh, you know, or George Clooney. Okay. But it's important that people see. A diversity in gender, in race, ethnicity. And I think for me as an Asian woman, you know, a lot of times going through training or as a doctor, or a lot of times people say, Oh, you're too young, you know, to be my doctor, or or you look like you're, you know, 16. Sometimes some of those stereotypes are not bad. I mean, people are, I think are coming from not necessarily a bad place, but they definitely have stereotypes. And I think the best way to deal with some of those microaggressions or stereotypes is to kind of assume that they're coming from a good place and not necessarily from a bad place and to engage in dialogue. And I think that that's the best way to engage people. You know, I'm not saying that there's not times for confrontations, but I think sometimes when people are put on the defensive, they don't really engage in dialogue. So what I try to do is instead of taking it personally or giving it back to them personally when I feel like there's been microaggression, is to try to look at what's behind that comment and to address at the stereotype and do it maybe either directly or indirectly, but assume that they're coming from a good place and that they're just stereotyping me. You know, and a lot of people, especially in Middle America or in small rural areas, are not around a lot of Asians or a lot around a lot of other race ethnicity. And I don't assume that they're. You know, it's it's just that they're just not familiar. So I think that it's important that we come into it as Christians with the best of our intentions, assuming that the people have the best intentions and engage in dialogue. I think a little bit of honey and sugar is better to kind of sweeten the dialogue versus you yes. know assuming the worst in people. So I think that that has tend to work for me. I think the other thing that I've certainly encountered, and I know a lot of women have encountered this, not just women of color, but just women in general. You know, you may say something and people don't hear it, but if a man says it, you know, it's heard. So sometimes I have to say to myself, is it important that people realize that I said this, or is it important that as long as the idea is out there and that people take that idea and go? And so I think people, again, it's important, not that you don't want to be silent or not seen. I mean, I think everybody should be seen and should have a voice. But it's also to kind of separate that from who you are personally versus the idea or the thing that you want to be brought forward. And we have to all work together, you know. So, so I think that that's very helpful. And also people feel less defensive if you're not saying, oh, well, you said this and it was a microaggression. But just say, you know, well, what is the idea here? Uh, why, what, is, what is the stereotype? What are you thinking? And make it a little bit less personal. I feel like we're in this space where everybody is so polarized and they, that we don't even listen to each other. And I think one way to improve the dialogue, especially on people who do, may disagree with you, or who are not listening to you, or who don't see you, as a woman of color, you know, I don't want to necessarily, I mean, my style is not to get in their face because Again, my husband doesn't like it when I get in his face. So so, so it, it's a way to like engage in dialogue. I would say that that's the best way so It's like assume the person is coming from a good space and you're coming from a good space, and let's talk about it in a more calm way. I, I think that's the best way to engage people,
1: yeah, and that's super gracious you of you to approach it that way, right? And again, important, as you say, to not assume everything. Not to take everything personally, but also not to just walk away if there are serious things that need to be tackled or approached or dealt with, right? So I'm imagining you with this new cohort of med students. And I'm thinking, so what would you encourage them to say if they go in to see a patient and the patient makes some sort of comment to this woman about how young she looks or are you old enough to be a doctor? Or you know, do you have any one-liners? I guess is my question that you would encourage med students to sort of memorize to either approach it in a way that's somewhat head-on but not maybe confrontational. Yeah, just curious. Just curious if you. Have I, I would.
2: I would say just stay professional. I mean, you're yeah. a professional. We're in a professional setting, and, and stay above the fray. And I think both in academia, in politics, in in all of our professions is that we need to stay as professional people. And that's the best way to to respond is I'm a professional and I'm going to respond to you as a professional. I would say that's probably the best way to kind of keep, you know, keep the conversations professional and open. I'm not sure that, you know, that whether it's that patient or a student, I'm not sure that they're going to respond well if you kind of engage in a way that's more flippant or or, or whatever. So that's what I would encourage us to do, you know, is to stay professional.
1: Yeah, great. So there's a lot of uncertainty and unrest these days coming from a number of places, right? There's a global pandemic that we're in the midst of. There's economic uncertainty because of that there is civil unrest because of racial injustice. So how are you speaking to and engaging with your students and your colleagues these days around those questions? I'm curious what kinds of conversations you're having these days regarding any of what we're experiencing in this in this sort of cultural moment.
2: I think that it's really important that people speak up whether it's about racial injustice or sex and gender injustice or harassment. I mean, I think that the Me Too movement, we don't want to forget about that, okay? I mean, that wasn't that long ago. That was last year. I mean, it's very important for people, for men and women to speak up when they feel harassed because of their sex or gender or harassed because of any way. I mean, I feel like the Me Too movement was very important. I feel like this time right now is also very important. I encourage people to speak up. I also want to say that we want to have safe space because it's a painful, difficult dialogue that we want to have. So what we're doing at the school is having small groups of people who talk about their experience, talk about their feelings, and create safe space. So we're doing that for the students. We're doing that for the faculty. We're doing that for the staff of the medical school is to create the safe space for people to talk about their experience and about how they're feeling. I think that's very important right now. And then again, I think it's important for us to have dialogue in a way that's polite and professional and assuming the best in the person. I really do think that we can bring out the best in people or we can bring out the the worst in people. And I think that as people who believe in the spirit, I want to engage in the best in the spirit of God that's in you as a dignified human being that's created by God. So that's how I would encourage us to engage each other is to basically try to bring out the best in that person and use the best that's in us. And that's that's where I think it's really important to to have that kind of dialogue because it's not easy to have that dialogue, but I think that when we have that dialogue in a spirit of peacemaking of goodness, then we can further. We want to be peacemakers, not to kind of paper over that things are great, but also we don't want to be divisive. We want to come and have common ground. And I know that we, a lot of us may feel marginalized, but we've all been marginalized at some point in our lives. And so can we help the other person understand that? You know, it may be They were marginalized because they didn't wear the right sneakers at school, or they were marginalized as being the fat kid or marginalized as being the nerd or unathletic. So I think that that's the best way to engage people is to talk about your own pain and your own ways that you've had microaggression uh, or macroaggression or discrimination against you. But also to help people understand that feeling. And I think people would will understand that. So peacemakers, that's how we should be engaging in the dialogue at this time. But also creating safe space for people to really be real about their own experience yeah. and their emotions and their pain.
1: Yeah, I know there have been in a number of conversations with faculty recently that are wondering how how is it that they, as schools go back in the fall, if they go back, how can they create safe spaces for their students, both as an ongoing aspect to their classrooms, but also particularly in this moment as students need to have some conversations about various things that are happening, right? So. Quinn, we like to conclude our podcasts by asking the same question to all of our guests. And that question is this, is there a particular quote, scripture, song, or other set of words that's been meaningful to you lately? And can you share it and then why it resonates with you at this particular time?
2: I think during this time of the pandemic and quarantine and social distancing, the one quote that has come to me lately is from the Persian poet Hafez, uh, and it says, stay close to anything that makes you feel glad to be alive, anything that gives you energy. I've also been reading a lot of Father Ronald Rolheiser, and he's written this book called The Domestic Monastery, where he discusses we're all living in tight Quarters right now, and and we can't (laughs) go where we want to go and do things that we want to do. But what is it that gives us energy? What is it that gives us life, makes us feel whole and connected? So, I would say that during this time where we're not able to go where we want to go, travel, see people, kind of ask yourself, What is it that gives me energy? What makes me whole? And it may not be. (laughs) hiking or going to the beach or or traveling. It might be baking or knitting or, you know, tinkering around in, in the garage. But I think that just, that's been really helpful for me is what is it that gives me energy? What makes me feel connected? What makes me feel whole? That's what I'm doing right now.
1: That's great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you for being with us uh, today and sharing some of your story and some of the things that are valuable to you as you think about this next chapter that the Lord has for you there at the med school. So again, thanks for being with us and blessings on your new adventure.
2: Thank you, Karen.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trisik, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.interversity.org podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well, You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.